Our text this morning is Isaiah 61. If you'd be turning there. If you don't have a Bible, I'd ask you to take your Bible in front of you. It's the black book, and we'll be on page 620. As you're turning there, I invite you to stand as we read from God's holy word. God says through the prophet Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to all to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of God, that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in the glory, in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, for my soul shall exult in my God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Let's pray. Father, we delight in your word together this morning. I pray for all of us here that we would be sensitive to your Holy Spirit, that you would fill us, and then that would cause in us the hope and the repentance that you desire. For those of us who are in Christ, I pray that we would rejoice in the hope that is set before us because of the God-man, Jesus Christ. For those of us not in Christ, I pray that we hear these words as the pleads of God to repent and believe. I pray that you would be with me now as a sinner to speak your perfect word faithfully. I pray you'd be with us now through Christ, and I pray in His name, Amen. You may be seated. In advance, I'm going to tell you, and I probably, you'll know this if I don't tell you, so I'm just 
I'm, I'm giving my own punchline before it happens. Most of you know me. I am uh, sometimes can be a little long-winded when it comes to making points. Um, so when I give you a point, and if you're writing, taking notes, that's great. I'm going to repeat it a couple times. I'm going to tell you it's going to sound wordy, and if you know anything about the English language, you're going to think, eh, that doesn't work. But um, just bear with me, understand, okay? So what we're trying to do here today is to explain this truth. And you'll, you'll know this once I read this. You'll say, ah. So this is what we're trying to highlight Jesus Christ, as the fulfillment of the Old Covenant, inaugurates the New Covenant, which ushers in the restoration of the true Israel and the judgment of the world, now experienced and then already not yet since. You get it now? I'll read it again in case you... I'll read it a little faster, though, so you're not bored. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant, inaugurates the New Covenant, which ushers in the restoration of the true Israel and the judgment of the world, now experienced and already not yet since. All that we're going to talk about for the rest of this sermon is going to highlight some point of that and work through it. So it's important that we understand where this text is going, where it's flowing, and we'll get to the immediate context here in a little bit. Before we jump into that, I wonder if any of you know anything about countdowns. I know something about countdowns. Um, Most of you you do too. If you don't, you will in a second. So we've got the countdown. We've got things like TGI Friday. You know why that is? Because during the work week, what are you doing? You're reminding yourself that the weekend is coming when you have to get up early and go to bed late and you're tired and you want to go to work or you don't want to go to work. We've also got the school semester just started. Some of you have already marked on your calendars, December, whatever it is, because you know that it's going to end and bring about the end of that semester. For me, I'm thinking May 2014, and I'll be done with learning forever. I'm just kidding. All right. So I was once engaged. I'm now married. On my phone, I had this countdown. It was actually... It's called a D-Day counter, which that's neither here nor there. But so I started, I set the date that I was looking forward to. What day was that? My wedding day where I was going to come and take vows with my bride. We were going to covenant together, okay? So it started at like 200 something because we, uh, we believe in short engagements in the Hill household. I'm just kidding. So we had this countdown every day. Think about it. I look at my phone and say, all right, just one more day, one more day, one more day, one more day, one more day. So that a lot of times you get down, you're like triple digits. And then you're like, oh, double digits. And then eventually you're going to get to single digits. And then before you know it, the day's there. We now have a two-month-old baby. Countdown. This one is a little less tentative because you don't know as far as day and hour. As many of you were faithful to remind me when I told you that we were going to the hospital. Some of you men took me aside and said, just so you know, that doesn't mean you're having the baby then. I was like, okay. All right, I understand that. So, but I mean, you've got a, you've got a basic timeline as far as you think. Well, I mean, this month and this will happen and then you've got what to expect every 36 seconds of your life 
books being published so you know what's coming and things like that. So you've also got, some of you think about vacation. During the school year, you think about summer, and you think about, oh, I can't wait to go to the beach. Um, If you're like me, you think, oh, I can't wait to go to the mountains. Um, Or some of you, and you may think, oh, I can't wait for it to be football season. Uh, We had a glorious event. I don't know if we have any football fans. We had a glorious event this past weekend. What was that? The start of the college football season when Alabama is going to roll through everyone and be national champions again. Roll time. Just kidding. So, and it's interesting then, if you've, if you've watched any TV, if you ever watch ESPN, they've got Monday Night Football. And what do they put? The game, because we're on Eastern time, is not till like an ungodly hour if you're going to watch the whole game and go to work the next morning. But so what do they have starting at about like 6 o'clock? Countdown to NFL Monday Night Football, and it's like four hours, and you're like, are you serious? Like, why don't you just tell me when we're 30 minutes away, and then we'll all be good. But so, why are they doing that? Because, and I, they haven't told me, they didn't write me a letter and tell me, why do I think they're doing that? Well, I think they're doing that because they want you to turn to that channel, and you know it's coming, and they want you to say... Those numbers are getting smaller and smaller. I better just stay right here. I don't want, I don't want to miss this. It could, four hours is going to go by like a blink. So they want to keep it up. They want to keep the ratings up. They want to remind you of what's coming so that you stay tuned. Some of those examples are silly. I understand that. But what we need to understand in coming to this passage is that all these things, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, with the future hope that we have because of what Christ has done for us in Romans 8, We now are looking ahead to the future that is in store for us when Christ returns. And looking ahead to that future hope, which is a sure hope, gives us the confidence and gives us the endurance and the perseverance needed by His Spirit to remain faithful until the end. From here on out, we're just going to be unpacking this. So pick your countdown, pick whatever you want. I know every analogy breaks down, but what we're getting after is this. When you're looking towards the end, you're motivated by the end. When you're looking towards your present reality, you're motivated by the end to live faithfully in light of what's coming. I've never run a marathon, so I can't talk about any of that. So I'm sure there are several great physical exercise examples, but I won't use them here because I don't want to be a hypocrite. All right, so authorship. Obviously, we, this is the book of Isaiah, but I mean, I, we sometimes you read the Bible, you take this for granted. Uh, but there have been a lot of different views over the years that we're not going to get into. But there have been many proposed authors for the book of Isaiah. Some say three, some say four, some say six. I say one. Why do I say one? Well, I think Jesus says one, and when Jesus says one, I want to agree with him. So, we have Isaiah here, and why has there been so much confusion and different, just kind of, interpretations of what's been going on? Well, it's because a lot of the writing in the book of Isaiah, a lot of the writing in the book of Isaiah is different. you got different themes, you got different outworking that's going through there. And I'm going to break it down into three sections here in a minute. But some of these are very, very 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know another word besides different. So I'll just stick with different. They're very different from one another. And why is that? Well, the prophet Isaiah, his ministry of being a prophet to the nation of Judah lasted for several decades, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of four decades to six decades. So you've got this message being brought to the people over an extended period of time. And not only this, but you've got several different themes going throughout. For instance, and this is there's 66 books in the book of Isaiah, chapters in the book of Isaiah. 1 through 39 are addressed to the current people, the current Judah. And this is announcing the judgment that is due to them because of their rejecting God's covenant. And 40 through 55, this is addressed to the exile, which is still... He writes around 740 to 700 B.C. The exile is not going to come until the fall of Jerusalem, which is like 586 B.C. So we're still well over 100 years away from that. But he prophesies in such a way that he speaks to the people when they will be exiled. In the same way, you've got chapter 56 through 66. And this is to the exiled people. And this is to those who are experiencing the judgment of God because they are covenant breakers. And he's reminding them that there is a restoration to come. So then this is where our chapter finds itself. And this there's a whole section really, I mean, 60 through 62 is seems like there's a lot of coherent thought, like it's a unit, but we don't have time to go through all that. So we're just going to focus on one chapter within that. But I would encourage you to read that on your own. So Hezekiah, Jadma, Ahaz, Uzziah, all these kings reigned during the time of Isaiah. And many of them responded differently to his leadership. And we, we have to understand this in the context of how the people then would have understood it. He's writing to them here in our section here. We're just gonna, from now on, we'll just be focusing on this, our chapter. But he's writing to them who will one day be in exile. They're not now. This is still many years away. But he's writing to them. And when they are in exile, then they will remind themselves of his words. And they'll say, remember how Isaiah prophesied about what was to come. And we now here as believers, and we're going to, if you're in Christ, I'm not saying that everyone in here is a believer. I'm just saying, for those of you who are in Christ and are trusting in Christ, we now have a serious... A similar experience in that we are now awaiting, as they were then, the return and restoration that Christ brings. This is not necessarily in the same sense as them, because we experienced this more clearly. They looked as things that were far off. They said, all these prophecies are pointing us to someone and something, but we do not clearly see them. We now, living after Christ has come, after He has been raised, after the church has been established for over 2,000 years, we now see this more clearly, and therefore we have more reason to hope because God has revealed it to us. The purpose that Isaiah has in writing this chapter, actually that God has through Isaiah, is to spur on in faithfulness those who longingly await the restoration the Messiah brings by way of reminding them of their sure hope in Him. Now, we're going to dive into the text. So, hopefully you understand the context, where this is going. 
written to people who will one day be in exile, written to them that they might have hope that there's coming a restoration. So now, 61. I'm going to break this into four sections, the first being verses 1 through 3. This is my first point. In Christ, God's covenantal blessings and curses are realized. Say it again. In Christ, God's covenantal blessings and curses are realized. We're going to highlight how that happens in these verses, why I think that's the case. Verses 1 and 2, if you if we, you were paying attention at all when we were reading this and you know the New Testament, what should have clicked in your mind? Jesus Christ, in Luke 4, reads this passage, verses 1 and 2, and he takes it up, he reads it, he gives the scroll back to the attendant, he sits down, and then the people are looking at him, and what does he say? This has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's interesting to note then is that he does not include the second part of verse 2. He stops with to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Boom, he's done. Verse 2 goes on to say, And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Why does he stop there? Why doesn't he continue on reading? Well, as we're going to see with the rest of this passage, in Christ's coming, the fulfillment of these promises is seen, but we now experience this in an already not yet sense. I hope that doesn't confuse you. That's not a backward way of talking about things. I think it's justified. So Christ, when he comes to earth, takes on flesh. He's empowered by the Spirit of God. He says this prophecy after he's been baptized. And if you know from reading the accounts, the Spirit comes upon him. Then he goes into the wilderness and is tempted. And then in Luke's Gospel, we come to this point when he goes into Nazareth, Nazareth to the synagogue and reads these words. So the Spirit anoints him. And then what do we have in the second part of that? Because the Lord has anointed me. For a specific purpose. If you remember, Jesus in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. He comes not by his own authority, but the authority that is given to him by the Father. This is confirmed. I mean, we now see this clearly where our... um, where someone who reads the Old Testament uh, has a typical uh, classical Jewish understanding of the text would not see the Trinity. I read this, I see Trinity. If you're here today and you're a believer, you should see the Trinity too. Okay, So we've got Christ. This is essentially, Isaiah is prophesying, but he's prophesying Christ is direct fulfillment of this prophecy. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon him. The Lord has anointed him. For what purpose? To bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And we go on and we talk about mourning and those who are in distress. And the question becomes, what do all these things have in common? Why is it that repeatedly in the Bible... You have all these things talking about, I mean, you think about Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes. You think about, blessed are the me, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. And I know I'm, I'm mixing all those up, but don't worry about that. But so you've got all these different things. You've got, when, when Paul in Acts is wanting to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles, 
and the different Jewish leaders, they've heard that he's been persecuting the church, and they come together, and what do they charge him to do? What is one of the things they list out? They charge him that he would be faithful to preach the gospel to the poor. And Paul says, the very thing that I was eager to do. Why is that? Does God just care more about people that are poor? Are all poor people blessed by God? Are all poor people going to be redeemed? I mean, I I think if we read the rest of the Old Testament, we read the New Testament, we look in our day, we know that that's not the case. So then why is this being highlighted? Well, you have to understand that why did the exile come about? It came about because Israel had transgressed the covenant that God had made with them. God had told them, if you will keep my covenant, I will bless you, and I will bless those who bless you. But if you will not keep my covenant, my curses will remain upon you. The prophets remind all God's people that he has covenanted with that they are covenant breakers. That something with their relationship with God is not right. Everything is not okay. If you remember several weeks, well, I guess several months now, we started going through Exodus in Sunday school. When we got to the Exodus 19 and we start getting into the giving of the law and the, old, uh, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, and then working through all these things, and they say, Moses comes before the people and he says, this is what God has charged you to do. Well, how do they respond? Well, we're, we're not really... I, could he... Could he reword what he wants? Well, we're not really going to do all that, right? Well, of course not. That's not how they respond. They respond and they say, everything that God has commanded us, we will be faithful to do. Then what happens? Moses sprinkles blood on the congregation and they enter into covenant with their God. Keep reading. A couple chapters later, what happens? Golden calf happens. Whole nation rejects the authority and covenant of God, within 40 days. Moses goes up on the mountain. He's there for 40 days, 40 nights. The people, while he's up there, come to Aaron and say, Moses, I mean, I don't know who is that guy. We don't know him. What's he got for us? He's probably dead up there. We don't even know. Let's just move on. Let's go out of here. These kind of things. And then God tells Moses what's happening. And then Moses throws the two tablets down and breaks them, which is symbolic of the breaking of the covenant. Repeatedly, you keep on reading, keep on reading, keep on reading. What happens in the kings and what happens in the judges and what happens in all these different periods of Israel's life? Some people have talked about this as like a downward spiral. So you've got... Where they were, the presence of God fills the tabernacle. He's with them. He leads them by a pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. His presence is among them. And then what happens? Down and down and down and down. They continue to reject God's covenant. They reject those who were sent to them. In fact, tradition has it that Isaiah was sawn in two. That's pretty good indicator that they did not accept the message that he was speaking to them. They reject the covenant that that he has for them, even though they once claimed that they would have it. So, because of that, they should 
feel poor. They should feel brokenhearted. They should mourn. They should experience these things. It's actually those who do not feel this way. When Christ comes again, you think of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When they feel that they are righteous before God, and He rails on them more than anyone else. He rebukes them because they are looking in and of themselves for their righteousness. When he is saying, all along you should have recognized that there was no righteousness apart from me. The downcast and the broken in the morning recognize their situation and their standing before God as covenant breakers. And because of that, they are looking to Christ who is to come. Now, many of them misunderstand who this God is. They think that He's coming ruling and reigning. But, this will happen, but it will not happen now as Christ comes in the flesh. It happens when He returns again. So, what makes this good news? You'll notice here, you've got the words, good news. And we think about, you think good news, you think gospel. At least if you're a Christian, you think, oh, okay, well, he's talking about the gospel. And I'd say, well, ultimately that's right. What is the good news? What makes it good news? If you're brokenhearted because you realize that your status before God is hindered, what then would be good news to you? Good news looks like the restoration of that relationship. It looks like your unrighteousness being dealt with by another And His righteousness being given to you. Verse 2, you have the year of the Lord's favor. So now we, Jesus said this is fulfilled. I think what He's getting at is that this is coming and this has come in Jesus Christ. So that now, as people living after His resurrection, if you think about 2 Corinthians 5 and 6, we have the ministry of reconciliation. We now are sent to all nations to preach the gospel that we have been enabled to come to God through Christ. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of repentance. Awaiting for the hope that is to come. The day of vengeance comes simultaneously with the day, the year of the Lord's favor. And when I say simultaneously, I don't mean at the same time, even though I know that's what simultaneously means. What I'm getting at is that in the gospel, we have both salvation and judgment. You can't have one without having the other. Well, you can, but not in this sense. God doesn't just come and offer salvation. He comes and offers justice. So how is God justified? How is God just in justifying sinners? A few weeks ago, we had this in Romans. How does he do this? He does this through Christ. The sinners are brought before God and considered to be in right standing because of what Christ has done for them on their behalf. So that now, their sin is not passed over in the sense that we just overlook it. Now, I mean, that's just a small one. Forget about that one. It's not that. It's that it has been dealt with once and for all time in the God-man Jesus Christ. So now we have this right standing before God that He is no longer wrathful towards us, but He relates to us only in His love. And following also with that, 
is if you will not accept and if you will not trust in Christ who has made this way to reconcile you to God, there comes with that the judgment of God. And this is not something that we delight in in the sense that we long for the destruction of godless people. Because we recognize that apart from Christ, we are godless people. We are all in need of God's grace. But what it does mean is that we have hope because we know that the chaos and evil that permeates this world in our lives is going to be dealt with. All wrongs will be righted either through the cross or through eternity in hell. Think about the stumbling stone imagery that's often picked up. Jesus is the stumbling stone. There's a song, there's a church here in the area called Sojourn, and they write their own music, and they have a song that I really like, and one of the lines in there is, you've got to fall on the rock or the rock is going to fall on you. It's really catchy when you hear it. I I won't sing it for you. I will spare you. But what what it's illustrating is that when we come to Christ, there are polar decisions we have to make. There's not an in-between. There's not some middle road that we can take. There's not a different route that this is one option for you, but there are a couple others. You have to respond to Christ either in repentance or in rejection. In verse 3, we have the great exchange. Grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness. And we see at the end that all this is for the purpose of God being glorified. But how is this brought about? It does not say, well, he's going to, you're going to take your own garments and you're going to wash them really clean and then you're going to put some bounce and gain sheets in there and they're going to smell really good and you're going to get the oxy clean and it's going to purify all that. Well, no. The garments that we are given do not come from ourselves. They are not what we have somehow purified in the sense that we're just tweaking it a little. This is something wholly new and wholly given to us by God. It is not of ourselves. Section 2, verses 4 through 7. This is point number 2. And we're going to go faster, don't worry. The nations will know God's people through their relationship with Him. The nations will know God's people through their relationship with them. You'll notice in verse 4, the subject is now changing. It's no longer Isaiah prophesying as in the first person, which Jesus is going to ultimately pick up and fulfill. Now the subject switches to a plural. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So now this is shifting to the people of God. These people that have been given the righteousness of Christ, ultimately, and obviously, when they read this, they would not have fully understood this. They're still looking ahead. So I'm not saying that, oh, well, they're waiting for Christ. They know He's going to die on a cross, and they know this. I think it's clearly laid out. You've got Isaiah 53, suffering servant, this whole passage. But what I am saying is that we now hear 
knowing what has happened, having the full of the canon, having the New Testament, we now better understand this than they would have. I don't mean that we have some special knowledge that, in the sense that like some weird mystic cultics thing, but we have been given the Spirit of God to understand His Word. So, this now comes to the people of God who have been redeemed, and we have to ask ourselves, why these people? Why would God choose the poor, the brokenhearted, the mourners, the captives? Why? Why not choose the celebrities? Why not choose those in power? Why not choose those whom the world delights in? Well, if you're reading through, you come to the New Testament, what does Paul often say? God has counted the wisdom of the world as folly, and the world sees the wisdom of God as folly. But the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of the world. He's chosen to do this, not that many of you were wise, not that many of you were rich, not that many of you were well off, but He's chosen to do this to show that He, He as God is the reason. He as God is the source of all of our hope. It is not in and of ourselves. Now this does not mean that somehow... If you've got some position or rank or something like that in the world, that that automatically excludes you. But what it does mean is that primarily God is confounding the world by exalting His own purposes to glorify His name. This is a quote from one of my professors in a book. If you want to read the book, it's like 600, 700 pages, but it's awesome. So if you want to read that, come talk to me. But this is a quote from that book. It's called Kingdom Through Covenant. He says, in fact, the New Testament presents the Spirit as the agent who not only gives us life, but also enables us to follow God's decrees and keep God's laws, thus making us covenant keepers and not breakers. So, what I'm getting at is now, not only are we brought into the fold of God, who were once covenant breakers, but through God's Spirit, we are now enabled to do what we were unable to do apart from His Spirit. Again, we're going through Romans. This is clearly picked up. Jesus Christ did what the law was unable to do because we responded to the law in sin, but by His Spirit, we are enabled to keep the law. This is not the grounds for our justification, but this is a result of our justification before God. The city that's being rebuilt, I think, ultimately points to the fulfillment in the new heavens and new earth with the church as the living stones of the people. If you were listening while we read 1 Peter 2, what does Peter say? You're living stones being built up to glorify God. When you get to Revelation 21, you've got the new Jerusalem. You've got all these different images of building materials and things that happen. You're like, well, that sounds a lot like the tabernacle. That sounds a lot like the temple. What's going on here? Well... The church is now the place where God's Spirit indwells. Each and every one of us, if we are truly in Christ. Verse 5. Isaiah prophesies to those who will one day be in exile. You have to remember that. So, this might be easy for us to say now, but when they're reading this as they're in exile, they're thinking, well, they might be tempted to think, well, 
easy for you to say, Isaiah, you weren't in exile. How you're speaking about us ruling and reigning and glorying over these different nations and they're going to serve us. I am a servant. I am serving these people. They're glorifying over me. What hope do I have for that to be changed? This cosmic shift is coming when God will reveal the sons of God and He will exalt them over the nations of the world. Verse 6, you have kingdom of priests and ministers of God. Again, 2 Peter 2 picks up on this language. This demonstrates the discontinuity with the old covenant and the realization of what was meant for Israel. So if you remember, again, Exodus 19.6, were they supposed to be kingdom of priests? Did they do that? No. Who was Aaron? Who were the Levites? They were the priests before God. Under the old covenant, who was empowered with the Spirit? It was the leaders primarily. Under the new covenant, who was empowered with the Spirit? All those who are members of the new covenant. It's interesting to note then that Jesus says the world will know the church how? By its love for one another. That's John thirteen thirty five. I know we often can take this lightly. We often don't think much about our relationships with one another. We don't think much about church membership. That's why I'm encouraged that we're redoing the bylaws and the Constitution. I think that's wonderful. Not to say that it wasn't, membership wasn't valued before. I'm not saying that. You know I love my father who was here before. But what I am saying is that part of the way that we as the church love one another is by overseeing one another's souls. So that if you see your brother in sin, you go to him in love, asking and pleading with him to repent and live the life that he has covenanted with you, with God, to make, to live. This means that we care for the widows and orphans. This means that we care for those who are homebound. This means that we seek out those who are not like us. This means that your life does not revolve around only people your age. As the church body, we need each and every member. God has given us as gifts to each other for the purpose of demonstrating His glory to the world. Verse 7, you've got double portion, which is also picked up in verse 6. Double portion, where does that come from? What's going on here? Well, let me tell you. Deuteronomy 21, 17. Who is promised the double portion? The firstborn son. Now, if you read on in the Bible and you get to Galatians 3, Paul picks up on the imagery that Christ is the offspring, the true offspring, singular, of Abraham. And now we all through Christ are now sons and heirs with Him. Everything that was coming to Christ as the firstborn among many brothers is now coming to us if we believe and trust in what He has done. The nations will serve the people of God and there will be everlasting joy which cannot be shaken. Similar to the love that's talked about, that we talked about this morning actually. In Romans 8, that cannot be shaken by death, hardship, calamity, life, angels, demons, whatever comes against us, it cannot be shaken because it is in Christ and He has accomplished His work. 
This is another quote from that book. In the new covenant, it is the faithfulness of Yahweh that brings about or causes the giving of this reward. It doesn't come to us by our own merits, our own doing. We haven't suddenly in the 21st century gotten things right and we figured it out. Aha, Israel and Judah, you didn't understand, but we now do by our pulling up our own bootstraps. Absolutely not. As the Old Covenant revealed, we are unable in ourselves to keep the law. We are sinners in need of grace. Christ is the perfect, sinless substitution for us took our unrighteousness upon Himself so that we now have hope through Him. 8 through 9, this is point 3. The new covenant displays God's justice. Verse 8, why are the nations subverted to God's people? Well, it's because He is a just and good God who upholds His covenant. He's promised that He would curse those who curse His people. So when we are wronged, when we suffer persecution, it is just for Him to say, what comes upon them, I will visit upon those who have afflicted them. This is good news for us. Because we know that in Him all things will be right. God's people will be glorified among the nations. Just as Christ has triumphed over them, we will one day be glorified over the nations as those ruling and reigning with Christ. So how does the new covenant come over to us? How are we now to experience these blessings of God and not to experience the curses of God? Well, this doesn't come over to us one for one that we are now, as we've said, the faithful Israel. No. The one man, Jesus Christ, is the only means by which these covenant promises come over to us. Point four in verses 10 and 11. The gospel demonstrates to all people the righteousness of God and the salvation of the church to the praise of His name throughout the world. I don't do this on purpose. It just happens. I like to qualify things and then I end up having 14 prepositional phrases. But Paul does it too. And he's in Greek, so it's allowed. And I know I'm in English, but whatever. Let me read it again. The gospel demonstrates to all people the righteousness of God and the salvation of the church to the praise of His name throughout the world. You don't have to memorize it. Just understand what I'm saying. What, in verse 10, is the source of His rejoicing? Now this shifts back. It shifts back to Isaiah. He picks it back up in the first person. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in Him. Why? Answer. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. This is the source of His rejoicing, as it is for us who are now under the new covenant. Why do we rejoice? Not that He has made us righteous, or that we are enabled to be righteous, but in the sense that He has declared us righteousness by His work that He has accomplished. Now you have this imagery of bridegroom and bride, which, in your head, New Testament, what do you think of? If you've been to any weddings in the past ten years, one year, I don't know why I picked ten. 
any wedding in the past couple of years, what you know is Ephesians 5, kind of important. And then if you really keep reading and you get to the end in Revelation 19 and 20 and 21, what do you have? Israel, the true Israel, those under the new covenant, have now been purchased by their bridegroom. They are presented before Him in pure and spotless garments. That's why brides now, purity and virginity and stuff like that, come in white. Also in Revelation, they are dressed in white robes. Why? Not on their own doings, but because of the perfect work of Christ. He loves His church and gives up His life for the church. The gospel demonstrates his love for the church. Verse 11. Jesus often uses the imagery of sowing seed. If you think of it, there are so many different parables. The sower goes out into the field and wheat and tares and all these different things. This is picked up and I understand, yes, I mean, they were farmers. So what do you expect? He doesn't talk to them about computers. He talks to them about farming, which, like farming... I had a garden. I am no clay England. Much of what I planned does not come up. And uh, I can tell you many a story about how we kept looking at the ground, waiting for something to happen. Nothing happens. That's not the case with God. God is the faithful planter that all that he plants sprouts. All that he puts in the ground bears fruit. God, as the sower, has planted His people among all the nations. I mean, this should call in your mind, if you just think about, God has always been about bringing in the nations. Always been about blessing the nations. You think about His covenant with Abraham, that you would be a blessing to all the nations. Whenever the Isaac, um, he goes up, sacrifice Isaac, and then what's... Because he does not transgress the covenant, but upholds the covenant, God then reminds him that through him all the nations shall be blessed. You think about Jesus as he's talking about many laborers being sent into the harvest. He talks about there being many sheep who are not of this fold, and we must seek them out. This is why we have members of this church in Kenya, and Israel, and other places throughout the world. This is why we are called to fulfill the Great Commission. God has planted His people among the world and has ordained that there would be praise on every tribe, people, language, tongue, and nation to the glory of His grace. I'm done. I'm just going to close. If you're here today and you're a Christian, we must live in light of the sure hope we have in Christ. We don't experience everything in here fully. But the way the Bible talks about this hope is one that cannot be shaken. It's not like, well, I hope I get a good meal after church. I hope I get a good night's sleep. That's here nor there. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. When the Bible speaks of hope, it is a sure thing. Jesus has accomplished this. The end, looking to Christ's second coming and spending eternity with Him, must motivate us to live faithfully in the joy of knowing we have been reconciled to God. What's he say in Isaiah 56.1? We are to remember these things that we would be faithful and diligent 
to do them, to live faithfully. This must be applied to all of life, day in and day out. I know, I go to work, I go to school, I come home, I've got an incredible wife and a two-month-old baby. I've got homework to do, I've got reading to do. I know that you can begin to get bogged down, to just go through the motions of life and just wait for something to change, just say... Well, here, here I go again. I'm going to just do the same thing every day and just be sucked into monotony. Just to not think that what you're doing has a purpose, that what you're doing is significant. But what the Bible reminds the people of God is that God has placed us here for specific reasons. That we would be built up together in the church and that we as a body of believers would be sent out. There would be salt and light. So then what this looks like is faithfully, day after day after day, of doing what God has called us to. All of life has eternal significance. All of life. The dirty diapers. The folding the clothes and doing all kind of brushing your teeth, which I could take or leave, honestly. I'm sure my... My wife can testify. I'm just kidding. All these different things. We are given hope. We are given joy. And we are given assurance. Because we know that in this life, God has promised to bring about the fullness of His praise when He comes again. To the unbeliever, the day is coming, as is clear from our text, When the truth will be fully realized as Jesus Christ returns. But He will not return as He once did. He will include the second part of verse 2 because He will come as judge of the living and the dead. Now, here now currently, is the day of salvation. If you're here, even your next breath is a gift from God that is meant to bring you to repentance. So do not scorn the patience of God, but heed the word that you would look not to your own righteousness, but to the righteousness of Christ. If you will not heed His word, know that only judgment remains for you as a covenant breaker who has rejected His promise. Let's pray.